Lights, camera, action. Today, we have actor, producer, creator of the series titled The Godfather of Harlem, Mark Hunt Smith. Thank you, man, for having me. This is great having you here, man. This is awesome. This is the first episode that we've had in, in person. Wow. Since uh, I think episode 13, we did all of them on Zoom until now during the pandemic. And the first 13 were all done in, in podcast studios. So we're back. This is like crazy live. There's like a person yeah. here. There's nothing we, like yeah. being up close I mean, and personal. Yeah, this you know? is, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're not like two faces in a screen in a Zoom screen. This is, <laughs> I can't believe yeah. that I'm in, I'm in the studio. This is yeah. fantastic. So um, when we talked, uh, uh, the thing that captured me so much was was your heart and and your and your philosophy, uh, 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 and and what your creative journey has been like. And one of the things that struck me as sort of a thread of of your life is is one of the quotes that you gave me, which was "Chase your passion, not your pension, and never give up." And uh, and and you told me a little bit about. You know, growing up in the Rockaways and how your and how your your life sort of started started out and how you and how you grew in a in a sort of a, your fascination to want to be uh, uh, involved in 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 storytelling and in acting. So get me get me started where we started off the last time we talked and how how this all began. How did because where you are right now, I will get to that. But it's your story is absolutely amazing. Oh uh, man, I I take it back to uh to Harlem coming up on 128th and St. Nicholas and uh uh going out to Far Rockaway Queens with my moms and living out in Ocean Village. Started off in Ocean Village. Ocean Village was a working class uh community. But Far Rockaway was always considered the Hamptons of Queens, right? But it <laughs> it was nothing but housing projects. You know, you had you had Hamels, you had Edgemere, you had Auburn, you had Ocean Village, and the list goes on, Redfern, uh, the 40s. And uh, when you're in a community in a, a little peninsula like that with a bunch of people that are restless and don't have anything to do during the summertime or during the wintertime, you get in trouble. Um, I started getting into the arts because that's what kind of saved me. I used to like watching movies, so I would lock myself in a room in, in, at home and watch you know, some of my favorite movies like Once Upon a Time in America or uh, On the Waterfront or Raging Bull or Rebel Without a Cause, you know, things of that sort. You know, I started getting to know the producers such as Sergio Leone, you know, and uh, Martin Scorsese and, and Coppola. I love the way they told the narratives and told their stories. And it was a way to escape from everything that was happening outside at the time. And and so you're... you're life in 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 a working sense started uh with with your your brother who was father mc right absolutely so tell me about being i guess you were on the road yeah. with your brother i i believe you told me that one of the roadies that was with you at the time before he was an artist was tupac shakur absolutely I mean, and this, today's his this, birthday as well today is this the birthday oh, of tupac shakur june 16th yep. oh my god wow yeah. well i'm the, this is a yeah a momentous moment that we have to to do this then um tell me uh tell me about tell me about the story of how that began and how you went and got involved 
working with your brother as, as a roadie. Like, I mean, this is, well, the, this is the beginning of everything, isn't well, it? Well, yeah. Well, my brother used to work at Kentucky Fried Chicken. They used to call him the, the flower guy. They used to laugh at him because um, every time he came outside, he had flour on his shirt, and he was telling people, I'm going to become a rapper. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to secure a record, a record deal. And it didn't matter what he had on because when he was off, he had on his silk shirt, he had his ballys, and we were hopping the A train, going to the new music seminar, giving out his demos. We would walk, we would ride the train and drink forty ounces together and uh eat the little uh the rice cups with the with the red sauce at the uh at the Chinese store and we just talk about the future. And um two, three months later, he had a record deal. Andre Harrell had signed him after uh, winning a contest at a roller skating ring in Brooklyn, uh, Empire Roller Skating Rink. They had a rap battle. So Andre, Andre Harrell signed him, and um, before you knew it, uh, the first video came out, which was Treat Them Like They Want to Be Treated. And uh, Sean Combs, everybody knows him as Puffy, P. Diddy, now he's known as Love, was dancing in the background for him. Uh, Prince Marky D and Corey Rooney did the actual first song. And... Um, we started to go on tour. My first tour was with Candyman, Troop, High Five, Second to None, AMG, DJ Quick. I started to know about, you know, other music on other different coasts. And it was the most tranquil uh, trips that I used to have on that tour bus, man. Just leaving leaving Far Rockaway and just seeing the world unfold. of The whole United States just watching the country, uh, the, the, the countryside pass by on a tour bus, listening to music like the Shy Lights and, uh, and Blue Magic and uh, the Temptations. You know, we had a road manager by the name of George Harrell. So George turned me on to all the music from the 60s and the 70s and things of that sort. But it was a, it was a great experience. And then that's how I met Tupac. Tupac was a roadie for um, Digital Underground, R.I.P. Shock G. He just passed away recently. And um, we were just two, 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 two guys that wanted to do something. They wanted to change the world. Pac was always talking about changing the world and saying, watch what he was going to do. He's going to make, he's going to spark the brain. If he doesn't do it, he wanted to spark the brain that could change the world. And um, I never wanted to go back to where I was at, to, to Far Rockaway, because there was nothing out there, with nothing but trouble. Uh, getting off the road, I came back, got in some trouble, Went through the juvenile system. Um, I was in uh, Sparford. Sparford is a facility in the Bronx. And from Sparford, I went to a uh, a DFY facility called Lincoln Hall. And in Lincoln Hall, in order to get a furlough, I had to read a book called Manchild in the Promised Land. And Manchild in the Promised Land is a book by Claude Brown. It was very inspiring, uh, really showcasing. It doesn't matter where you come from in your environment. You can make it. And he was a uh, he was addicted. He was a junkie, and he became a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And um, I loved the book and what it stood for. Came back, came back on tour, started again because you know these little these little spurts we had in between tours, we had to kind of figure it out. So um, my brother uh, fired me. <laughs> he let me go on his third album, not because he was doing it in a malicious manner, but more like you know, it's time for you to fly and go on your own. You've met many people, you have contacts, your network is your net worth or your net worth is your network, whatever way that you look at it. And um, I started working at uh, BET. I see, but but this is like, this is the roadie time is 1989 to 93. Yeah. So that must have extended a while 
past that because didn't you start at BET in 2000? Yeah, 2000. So that, 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 that's a healthy 11 years from when you started. Yeah. So you must have gone from 89 all the way to 2000. No, actually, I actually was on the road from uh, late 89, 90 till about 94, 95. Okay. And um, after that, I had got signed to Whitney Houston's label. Ah, yeah. okay. So there was another yeah, gig. Yeah, it was another with, gig. There was another gig. And then, but, yeah, yeah, but during these gigs, you you know, you're, you're hoping you can make some money. You're hoping you can get an advance and live off as an artist. So I was signed to a label by the name of uh, uh, A Better Place Records. It was through Nippy Inc. Um, Robin Crawford, Whitney Houston's best friend, started a label with Whitney. They had a group called Sunday. Uh, a cousin of mine's by the name of Harold Frazier. He did Pink's first album. He brought me on, and I, you know, that started my journey as an artist. I also was in the creative, the creative side. I was doing uh, summer stock. I was doing plays. I was. So you're acting. Yeah, I was acting. Okay, as well. so so this is like the '90s all the way up to 2000 when BET happens. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. Yeah. We're not going to BET yet. No, no not yet. No, no, not no, yet, no. You got it. BET a lot started in 2000. Yeah, no, and I know yeah, a little yeah. bit about what you told me about yeah. how that began. Yeah. But I want to I want to still linger. I want to linger. Okay. I want to hear about I don't want to speed through and 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 like speed read. Okay. Uh what happened uh uh cuz Whitney first of all Whitney's I mean, as as far as I know, Whitney's East Orange, New Jersey, uh, recording there oh, man, and all yeah. that. Okay, so tell me a little bit. I mean, I want to know about what happened there because I got. I recently I've gotten to know a few folks that were involved uh, 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 in Booga Basement, which was uh, a, that was the Fugees. That was the Fugees, yeah. right? And uh, and I think Whitney may have recorded there. Is that correct? Or when oh, you I'm were not sure. Did what? So but you what, were, but you were involved with Whitney during that era. I was involved early, with Whitney these early days. Yeah, I was involved with Whitney when she had a label deal at at Electra Records. It was Sylvia Rowan, it was uh, Merlin Bob, uh, and these were the individuals. Those were the executives over there. Um, and what were you? And I'm I'm sorry to ask the stupid no, question. What was your stupid. What was your job? What were you doing with Whitney? You were well. I was an artist. You were an artist. Yeah, you I were, was an you artist. Were, you were yeah. with her. Yeah, I was an artist. I was an art. It was a camp of us, and I was one of the artists that. Um, and Harold Harold Fraser was doing all the music for most of the music, the majority of the music. So he brought me in. I was an artist. I was. I had sort of my brother's flow. You know, they had like so you were you were an artist singing and not rapping. singing, rapping. You were rapping, <laughs> rapping, rapping. You were rapping, but yeah. you were rapping under that label. Is that what it was? Yeah, or? it was a it was a long, okay. it, it was called the Better Place Records. Okay, but the the group that they were focused on at the time was Sunday, and Sunday was um, on the Wait and the Exhale soundtrack that Forrest Whitaker right. uh, had um, executive. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so funny how it comes back around. Come back around with Forrest, yeah. Yeah, that he had executive produced. And I believe he won a Grammy for that album, for the Wait and the Exhale album, as a producer, because he was working alongside with Babyface okay. at that time. Okay. So it was a great experience, you know, talking to Whitney, and I remember talking to Robin, and, and if one thing st sticks out to me, I remember going to Robin's house, and she had this awesome denim jean tablecloth it, it's almost like straight out of a ralph Lauren uh uh catalog you know it had the jean pockets on it with the the napkins hanging out it was it was really cool and i also remember going to uh whitney's house in jersey and and bobby coming downstairs and uh it was just it was it was a fun time at the time you know i was still trying to just be around music because 
two things that really I, I love to create was music and uh, telling stories, the different narratives. So you were you had a, a a rap career that extended past the point that you were a roadie for your brother. I wouldn't say it was a rap career. It was trying to be a career. You were trying. Right? You were trying, trying to, to be. That, an, yeah. You were trying to do yeah, that. Absolutely. And and that ran until the BET gig in two thousand. Well, you know what it was. I was I was also you know hustling, uh, you know trying to figure out where I wanted to be in life. Certain things I, I I wasn't doing the right things, you know. I was, so I was just trying to figure it out, man. As an artist, you know, especially during that time, you know, uh, the struggles were real. Were real, you know. You were I wasn't priority on that label, you know. I was there, you know. Hopefully, my album would have came out after the priority would have came out, which was Sunday. But that never happened. The label broke apart for whatever business business matters it was, and it was on to the next one trying to figure it out so and you were out in la for like a handful of years at the before you came back to new york yeah. to go to bet in 2000 yeah so get, like take me through the roadmap here because there's a lot going on <laughs> and you didn't give me any of that story when we had our little chat so okay yeah. I want, so i know that you went out there because i think your brother was living out there now yeah. at this point you've already left working with him as a roadie, right? Yeah, but you yeah. went out there because he was out there. Yeah. Now, and, and now talk about started, that. I was a roadie as well as I, I graduated from a roadie to become a hype man. So Puffy is the first one that introduced me to becoming a hype man and learning how to move the audience and move the crowd and getting get them moving. Because as roadies, if people don't know what a roadie is, we did the grunt work. We had to break down the. But a hype man was on stage, right? A hype man was on stage. Okay, a roadie so is behind, behind the scenes. I had to break down the sets. I had to. Back in the days, we used to have coffins, twelve hundred turntables, right? Two turntables. You put them in the coffins. You break them down, and those things was heavy. They were like heavy, like a coffin. We had to make sure those were back on the bus. After, say, Technique twelve hundreds, no one were using that anymore. We were using dat tapes, so I had to make sure that dat tape was secure for the next show, you know? So those are the things that we did as a roadie. And uh, Tretch was a roadie for Latifah. Pac was a roadie for Digital Underground. So it was kind of work that could be kind of depressing because everybody is leaving and they're going to the after parties. They're going to mess with the girls, the pretty girls and stuff like that. We had to make sure that everything was done before we did anything. So we had used to sit on a tour bus and have long talks about, you know, what we wanted to do and things of that sort, you know, being frustrated with the jobs that we had. But my brother did that so I can I could have been able to travel with him because he had to use his budget to justify why he had me on the road because he had two dancers, a DJ, a road manager, his security, and he had me. So that was the reason why Uptown opened up a budget and was like, okay, we could bring him on the road to travel. And then tell me the stories of being on the road with with Tupac, you said absolutely. There's, I mean, I know that 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 had to be like. Oh uh, man, I, I mean, remember. This, yeah, this has got to be. I mean, I'm sorry, but I mean, we can't leave the room without <laughs> talking about you being a roadie yeah. with Tupac Shakur. I mean, I mean, this is like because, and and then also, what I don't understand is this is like, let's say this is like '89 to '93, '94, right? Yeah. He he transitioned. Which and, and you went through many yeah. transitions, yeah. but he transitioned to becoming uh, uh, an independent rapper and artist himself. Obviously, yep. after being a roadie, yep. but you were with him talking about dreaming to do this. Absolutely. Tell me more. You know, it, it's so funny when you have these, uh, these 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 stories and these conversations. I didn't, 
I I knew I knew Pac as Lesane. I knew him as just Tupac. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't even before he became this multi, you know, successful international rap star or, or artist, actor, you know. We used to sit down, we had reg we dreamt like regular people, you know, we just we had we had um we were very unapologetic. He he came from growing up in the Bronx to moving to Baltimore to moving out to uh Marin County out out in the Bay Area, you know. Showed me love. I remember we used to do stupid things like knock on people's door at the hotel with buckets of water and say, knock knock room service and as soon as you open the door you're getting it and we'd be running down the hallway. We were kids, you know. We we were trying to find our, our own way, you know, things of that sort, you know. Messing with the girls. I used to tell girls I was father. I was I was my brother, you know, I had my brother's jacket on, you know what I'm saying? And and you would pretend to be father. I would pretend to be I would pretend to be father MC or something like that to get the girls, you know what I'm saying? So we had real fun, man. I, I, I do miss him. And it seems like after he came back to New York and he did Above the Rim and he, uh, you know, unfortunately he got incarcerated, you know, we we didn't speak as often as we should have spoke. You know, he was out in L.A. and he was doing stuff with Suge and Death Row and I was still out here trying to find my way. Yeah, well, he became part of the West Coast. Yeah. contingent right yeah. i mean that was all that was that whole story yeah. yeah so um so now you're you're rolling forward and you've done all of this this that you've lived it you've inhabited this world and and somehow there's a a, a a change that happens in your life that kind of pushes you in the direction of needing to to take a for lack of a better word, a, a job job where you yeah. got to go to work every day. Yeah. Tell me the foundation of how why that happened. Oh man, I, you know, and I'm totally what? transparent. I, I got in some, uh, got in some trouble, and um, I was going back and forth to court. And if anybody knows about 500 Pearl Street, that is not a, uh, that is, <laughs> that's not Children's Place. That's not Chuck E. Cheese. That's the United States versus you. And I got caught up in a uh, conspiracy charge of uh of money and um my mother was frustrated you know you know i i thought i left that life uh, alone when i was in the the whole dfy thing going through sparford and everything of that sort you know rikers island visits and um i didn't know what to do i was going to court for a year and um i never realized what the federal government was until going to 500 Pearl Street and walking down that ramp and you see the M16s and the US Marshals right there, right? And I was like, I gotta change my life. And I started going back and forth to court. I was going to court for a year. And I remember one time sitting in the hallway with my mother and an Italian guy comes outside with his wife and I'm ear hustling and he says to his wife, hey, that's, that's my lawyer. He got me 87 months, that's a great deal. And I said, started counting on my fingers 12 months is a year 24 months is two year old god 36 months is three years and that's how the that's how the feds uh sentence you and so um i was going to court for a year uh fortunately um my judge who was uh denny chin denny chin is the judge that sentenced bernie madoff he looked at uh my court records and um and i, I had a wonderful attorney by the name of anthony cueto and anthony cueto was like you know he was the bottom, bottom barrel of this whole conspiracy. We're asking you to give him another opportunity. Uh, I remember Denny Chen saying, ah, that's close, but not no cigar. Because in the uh, federal guidelines, they, they have to sentence you. It doesn't matter if you found the cure to cancer, you know. 
um, you have to take ownership of what you have. You get a downward departure, whatever like that. So he came and said, uh, he came back in and said, you know what? I'm going to give you uh, five years, or three years federal probation. It's been over 20 years. I don't know if it was three or five years federal probation. So I was on federal probation and I had to pay a fine of like $2,000. That's how minimal it was, right? And um, I had to find a job. You know, I was on uh, federal probation. So when the, when the probation officer comes to your house, they look at the blueprint of your house. They look to see what's what the backyard looks like, the basement looks like, and they need to know that you have a job. And at that time, I was uh, still doing music. I was with another uh, label called the Specialist Entertainment. They did Pink's album and a and Adina Howard and a bunch of other people, but I wasn't getting any money. So one time my PO showed up and he smelled weed in, the, in there, and I don't smoke weed, but obviously I'm around that. He was like, nah, you need, you need to get a real job. You need to get a job as soon as possible. I'm going to violate you. And um, I just happened one day to say, you know what? I'm going to um, I'm going to fax in my 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 job, whatever jobs I did on the road or whatever like that. And I sent it into BET. And um, I initially wanted to do what Tigger was doing, which was he was doing Rap City in the basement, but they already had him as a host. And um, they said, yeah, we can have a job for you may not be the best job, but it's a job. And it was a job where I was actually monitoring videos, music videos. I was basically the videos that went in uh, low rotation, medium rotation, or high rotation. I was sending it down to D.C. And it was like something that I didn't really want to do, but I had to do what I had to do. And um, I remember my probation officer coming and saying, hey, you're here, come downstairs, stick your head out. So I used to have to come down and stick my head out. That's when we were at 106 in Park. And it's so crazy because um, while I was on probation, I realized what, uh, you know, um, I don't even know what the word to say, but I was targeted because they were looking at me a certain way, looking to violate me for anything. I mean, anything. So I remember... uh, I had a probation officer by the name of Bloomfield. He was cool. He was down on uh, Livingston Street. He didn't give me a problem. And then I had this guy by the name of uh, uh, Chang, this Asian guy, and he gave me the worst problems ever. It's a funny thing that happened. I was walking up the hill. We had 106 in Park. I get a phone call from a uh, from a, a regular individual, whoever it is. It says, uh, this is Officer, say her name is Officer Hernandez. Now I know that my probation officer is Chang is not officer Hernandez and she was like you need to give back this phone if you don't get back this phone I'm going to violate you and I said what phone are you talking about turns out this intern at my job whose cousin she hooked me up with to go out on a date with she was calling me from a phone right her baby father used to clean the uh, the federal buildings and he took a bulletproof vest a federal phone, and he was calling me from that phone. So I didn't have anything to do with that. So I had to get on my Sherlock Holmes, I spy stuff. I called my lawyer. My lawyer was like, we'll, we're going to sue them for even trying to target you like that. And they found out what happened, and no one apologized or anything like that. And I remember going to see him one day, and there was a cell phone on in the, in the waiting room. I said, hey, somebody left their cell phone in the waiting room. And he said, oh, oh. And, you know, I did it. I got off of it. And I said to myself, this is uh, something that I never want to experience to go through again in life. 
And um, yeah, so during that time, I was working at BET. I was only working there because I had to work there. But then it became one year, became two years, three years, became eight years, eight years, became 16 years. And um, I just felt working there. And this is no uh, no shade to BET. I just felt that there was a glass ceiling that I couldn't get past. And I was better than just walking, working in a cubicle in, in in a dark room and everybody says, oh, give him a videotape and let him send it down to D.C. Or give him the, uh, the the music cue sheet to let him figure it out or whatever like that. You know, I was always a creative person, you know. And you were being, in a, you were placed in a completely coordinator and administrative role. Exactly. And not only that, you know, you know, people in our business get kind of like really, uh, what's the word defensive if you see somebody that you know it's like don't say anything to the artist and i'm like i I was on tour with these artists i know who these artists are they know me you know what i'm saying so i was you know i was getting up every sunday not looking forward to going to work on monday you know and people outside were like well you work at pt that must be so cool to go to the hip-hop awards that must be so cool so, so cool to go to the um to to the bet awards but then you have to look at the inside and the internal things that are happening. You have people that are working uh, eighteen-hour shifts, shifts to promote your show, and you have to fight for tickets to go to the show. You feel what I'm saying? So it wasn't all the glory that people thought of, thought it was. You know, it was a lot of like days where I was like, I got to, I have to really figure it out. But I was always creating while I was there. I was using them as my office. So I was using their fax machine. I was creating. I've got so many contracts that were offered to BET and shows that I had, but it was just it wasn't just the right place or the right contract that I needed to do to put it out that way. So you were you were writing treatments or ideas for shows Absolutely. back then. Absolutely. I mean and this now leads to where we're gonna go. Absolutely. Quote, quite quite clearly. <laughs> um uh, 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 as as your transition, I think was in 2016. From what you told me, yeah. you were severed from BET. Well, when I say, and, or, I, or did you, or did you just leave? What no, was it, it exactly? Wasn't, it was it wasn't severed. What happened was when when BET came to uh, to New York from DC, Viacom bought them for, you know, Bob Johnson owned BET. He sold it to BET for, I mean, he sold it to Viacom for $2.5 billion or whatever it may be. We were at really at 106 and Park uptown. So when at 106 and Park, they brought us down to 57th Street, 555 building, the BMW building on 57th Street, 57th and 12th. And um, I guess Viacom gave BET a certain amount of time of a window before they came in and actually started Reorganizing, reorganizing. Ah, there you go. You know okay, so that takeover. So in that, in that process, there were people who were consolidated in departments that were changed. Absolutely, and then and that and you were and you were there when that took place, and 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 absolutely, and, and you were caught in that transition. And and I, I I hated to hear like after every awards show. Oh my God, the their heads are gonna roll. Or every year, people are like on the eggshells, hoping that they have a job the next year. And um, it just became so crazy. I remember one time they had to send grief counselors down to D.C. because you had people that were working there for 21 years, 22 years. They had kids in colleges, they had mortgages, and they had to send grief counselors down there. So fast forward, 2016. Viacom said, okay, enough is enough. We're going to come in and restructure and reorganize. We're not getting what we hoped we would. 
out of 15 years of town halls and everything of that sort when it's not happening. So when I started looking across, it was really no more brown people <laughs> across from me. You know, it was Viacom people. It wasn't BTHR anymore. It wasn't BT uh, uh, Finance anymore. It was Viacom. Viacom executives. Yeah, Viacom executives. Viacom started really putting that nail and hammer down. And I remember... Um, the hammer to the nail and I remember uh my supervisor and uh we, we had a great report as I thought he called me uh one day or he get, he emailed me and said make sure you come in for the team meeting right and um I said okay I'm gonna come in for the team meeting make sure you come in for the team meeting okay Marquand come in walked in I see his boss him and uh HR and he's like you know, it really disappointed me. He was like, uh, you know, his boss was like, "Yes, Marquand, you've been here for so long. You're 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 a great asset to the company. We really don't need you anymore." He just jumped in and said that, and they gave me four thousand dollars in severance and told me to figure it out. Um, it was really disappointing. It was really after sixteen years. After sixteen years, it that's was all really they gave you in the timber because this was a new. This is you're no longer under the 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 old company now you're now it's a takeover it's and now everything that everything that you had built in your time at BET yeah. started because when a takeover happens uh, uh, the new company starts the clock at day one yeah so I've seen that I've, I've experienced this in my own career unfortunately wow. yeah wow. yeah I won't go into the story but <laughs> but but I've I was with a joint for twenty five years and yeah. in the twenty first year. Uh, a new company came in and bought the place I worked for and kept me. Yeah. And four more years they kept me to get what they wanted. And then four years later I was I was gone, right? Yeah. And and all of the twenty one years prior I had built all that equity. Yeah. Right. And you were talking we're talking about chase your your passion, not your pension. Well I was chasing my pension. Yeah. But but the twenty one years that I put in started at, on the twenty second year at at year one yeah so so when i left the, the next leg i was only a four-year employee but i had been with the company for 25 years wow and and so the new company has the right to say adios to you yeah. so that's such a punch in the face it is but it's also emblematic of the story that you and i discussed and what i love about that personally is that you talked about how this energized you to become independent and to realize that you no longer would uh, want the next leg of your life to be working for someone but to be working for Marquand. But and, and you and and this goes back to piggyback on what you're saying right now is that you just get tired of going to auditions at 12 o'clock and your boss yelling at you while you're not back at 12:30 or you know you're getting up in the morning and you and you have to be to work at 10:45 if you're 20 minutes late you're getting you know another grown man is yelling at you like you know it's it, you have to you have to grab your own destiny and i always say and i have many bosses that 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 you know used to say to me uh charlie you, you don't work for us you work for you yeah and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you think about it, right, everybody works for yeah. themselves, yeah. right? But at a company, you become an instrument to where they're going. But but hopefully along the way, you gain something 
that lets you build the the path to the next chapter. Yeah, absolutely. It sounded like at BET, you had, while doing things that were administrative, you had the opportunity to think creatively and to come up with ideas. And you told me the most beautiful story about your godmother. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to go next, even though it's a bit of a zigzag. It, her name was Margaret Johnson? Margaret Johnson. Okay, which is amazing because that, that's the same name as Bumpy, but it's not the same family, right? Cause it Bumpy, is the same family. It is the same family. It that's her. Same. So she is she's the... Bam, she's Bumpy's granddaughter. Okay, she's Bumpy's granddaughter. Okay, yep. see, this this I didn't know. I okay. knew that she was your godmother, yeah, yeah. and I knew she told you the stories yeah. of Bumpy. Okay, so this is like an epic moment because... Yeah. I'm winding the clock back because this is a woman who was in your life when you were growing up, right? No, this is a woman that came in my life in 2000. 99. Oh, not until 2000. Yeah, 99, 2000. But she was your, but to be your godmother. She adopted me as her godson. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, now you got to take me where this goes. Okay. Because I didn't know that this, that as her, your godmother, that this happened as an adopted godmother much later in much, life much later much, much like yeah. the 2000 is is you know when you're starting it, yeah. the journey at BET so, what so that whole time yeah. you were you were talking to Margaret so what happened is this uh my cousin Tony uh Victor Dunlop he's an attorney right now he's a jag attorney his mother was Margaret's best friend okay so they had a relationship cuz Margaret was an uh, MTA worker she drove buses and they grew up in Harlem together, running the streets of Harlem, uh, his mother. His mother passed away, and uh, when Tony came home from law school, he was like, I want to introduce you to Margaret. And I met Margaret, and Margaret just took a liking to me. Tony really wasn't into Margaret at the time because Margaret at the time was, she she used to be, she, she used to be addicted to drugs at the time, and his mother used to party with her. And um, wasn't on drugs when I met her or anything of that sort. And... Um, Tony just felt a certain way about that. Um, like I, I started going to see Margaret every Sunday, man. Like every Sunday, just to make sure she was good. It was just where in Lennox Terrace in Harlem. And, keep going, um, keep going. She was the most amazing person I've ever met. Um, she was very protective over me. She looked at me like I was her son, you know. And she used to tell me these magical stories about Harlem, how she used to walk out of a tenement building and smell fresh laundry hanging out a window in the 60s or walk past 125th Street and you see James Brown's name on a marquee or even walk past Sugar Ray Robinson's barbershop, look inside, you might see Jackie Wilson sitting down or Nack and Cole getting a haircut or hear Sam Cooke's voice coming out of a transistor radio. She was talking about Harlem and the food and the culture, you know, you can go get chicken and waffles at <laughs> one in the morning or go to 22 West. 22 West had the best breakfast. But she also told me about how African-Americans migrated from the South, whether it was South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and they left the Bull Connor South of the, the, the dogs, the hoses, the fire hoses, but came up to New York, but they were still facing racism. Certain stores wouldn't let you uh, try on a hat without putting a shower cap on your head if you were African-American. They had a steak restaurant on 125th Street where an African-American family couldn't enjoy a steak dinner. While the other patrons were in the back eating, enjoying themselves, having drinks, they had to wait outside and take it to go. You know, 
racism was prevalent. It was the most terminalist times in America at that time. Uh, Emmett Till just passed away. You know, Mega Evans just got assassinated. You know, a couple of years ago. You know, uh, amazing. But, yeah, it was. It was. It was. The stories were so amazing. And but she used to tell me about her grandfather. The streets know him as Bumpy Johnson, Ellsworth Raymond Johnson. And how he came up to New York City from Charleston, South Carolina. He was a Geechee Guller. But he didn't come up here to become a gangster. He actually came up here to become an attorney. So he went to City College to get financial aid. Same thing that Ma Malcolm X was. Malcolm X wanted to become an attorney. And the, and the bursar said, we don't give financial aid to color, colored uh, individuals. And he said, I'm going to make you uh, eat your words. So he had to do what he had to do best. And Bumpy came up. He was born in 1905, October 31st, but he was he came up around the Maya Lansky's, the Lucky Lucianos, the Vito Genovese, the Frank Costellos, you know, the. Uh, he the, was connected to he, the entire. He was connected to the, the entire structure of the mob in New York. The, the real, the heads of the five family, the the origin, the growth of it, and um, the warden in Alcatraz said he had the highest IQ he ever saw for a colored man. But Bumpy was just an again wasn't just a gangster. He was a self-published poet. He read Nietzsche, Shakespeare. It's even rumors that he beat Bobby Fischer in chess. And she wanted the real story of her father slash grandfather told, not the one you saw in American Gangster or Hoodlum or the Cotton Club. Bumpy didn't die in front of uh, uh, twenty RCA TVs talking about Pepsi was the best product that you saw in American Gangster. Bumpy actually died in my character's arms. I play a character by the name of Jameson Juni Bird in a Wells restaurant of congestive heart failure. And she wanted the real story to be told, and I made her a promise that I would get it done since 2000. And that's the birth of the godfather of Harlem. You created the story. Yes. You wrote the story. And, <clears throat> and Bumpy was born in 1905, but the the real running, he moves to Harlem in in, in in 1919, and then in the 30s he's running numbers uh, uh, with Madame Stephanie Saint Clair, I guess. Yes. And and then is is somehow uh, 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 working against uh, 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 this guy Dutch Schultz. Tell me about that part of the the story. Well, that's the story that we didn't tell because you so, you you've seen it so much. That was in Hoodlum. The, the the Godfather of Harlem starts off in 1963. 1963. In 1963. When he gets out of prison oh, gets out of after Alcatraz. he was sentenced in the 1950s, he had a 15-year sentence. He was yep. let out in 63. Yep. He's got five more years to live because he dies in 68. He dies in 68. Right. And you're telling the story from the moment that he returns to Harlem in 1963. 1963. Amazing. Amazing. Collision of Civil Rights in the Underworld. Chris Brancato is a brilliant writer um and uh paul Eckstein and the rest of the team we wanted just to tell a story that you haven't seen before we didn't want to tell about the flappers and hanging off of a uh a a a, a 1920 uh uh cadillac and shooting tommy guns that wasn't the story we wanted to tell we wanted to tell a story that about what was happening in america and it's so parallel to what's happening in america as of today you know, the, from the LGBTQ movements to the Me Too movements to the Black Lives Matter movements to the Black and Unproud movements to women's rights, it all started in the 60s. And that's exactly what you see when you turn on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, you see this. So we want to, that's the parallel, the POV. Because if you think about it, 
the Harlem riots is Ferguson, right? That's right. Muhammad that, that, Ali. That's, that's what it is. Muhammad that's Ali not. is Colin Kaepernick. History is repeating itself and repeating itself. So we wanted to show something, a conversation piece, which is not entertainment, it's edutainment. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 the guy and and tell me how cuz this is a this is a big deal. I mean, now think about I mean, y- you were out of work, yeah. 4000 severance, you'd hit bottom. Mm-hmm. But you have this story in your hands. And 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 then there are these players that have to come together through Jim Atchison, Jay Cohen, from Gersh, uh, uh, all these guys that you told me about that made this come. Tell me how, what, well, wow, uh, how did this, how did this story happen? How did you, how did you go out of BET having had what really was, I guess, right the the treatment from from your conversations with your godmother? Yeah, because you are the story of the Godfather home. They don't. This is your story. You know what? You're, you're the guy telling this story, Charlie. You you're absolutely right. Uh, Started, I was in a I was in a dark, deep place after leaving BET, and I realized that. Tell me about that. That's what I want to hear about. I I realized that you don't really have friends; they're your work friends. You know your work buddies. You know, um, we we work in a in in a a world of freelance, right? And you would think you know you've been working with someone for fifteen years, and they say tap you on the shoulder and say, "Yeah, there's some work over here. There's some work over there." And I realized that you're you're not as good as what you did yesterday. You're as good as what you do today. And I had to figure it out, man. I was a, uh, I was a, I was in a deep place. You know, I was able to get an unemployment. Thank God, I was. You know, I had my four thousand dollars of severance, and I had to make it work. And I had, I I knew I had to make it work. Uh, failure was not an option. I didn't have a plan B. I never had a plan B. So one day I was in uh, my uh, apartment <clears throat> and I'm wondering to myself, damn, I just ran through my American Express card. They just turned that down. My Discover card is turned down. Matter of fact, American Express turned me down before I even could get to them because, you know, they're a charge card. They see your credit limits, you know, and they, they were like, well, and I'm like, something has to happen. And um, I was sitting down having a conversation with a, uh, an individual by the name of Bernard Alexander. He's like my uncle from the music industry. And I was, you know, he knew that I was trying to work on this project for such a long time. And um, he was working on the American Gangster Project with Antoine Fuqua before Ridley Scott came on board. And this is way before with Ari, uh, Ari Lerner. Avi Lerner. Yeah. Avi Lerner, yeah, 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 that's his name, Avi Lerner. And they were, I think it was through Millennium Pictures or something. Which is Avi's company. Yeah, they were trying to do it through there, and um, it didn't work out. But he introduced me to my partner, Jim Atchison, right? And I was talking to Jim on the phone about... Slow down there. It's your partner, Jim Atchison? Yeah. Tell me about that. How did that... Well, Bernard introduced me to Jim. Oh, I see. And and he became your partner. And he became my partner. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he became my partner, and I I had a conversation with Jim, and I said, you know, I'm doing this project about... um, a guy by the name of Ellsworth Raymond Johnson, Bumpy Johnson. Do you know who he is? He's like, yeah, I know who Bumpy Johnson is. I might be a white boy from Boston, but I know who Bumpy is, you know. And the other day he told me he really didn't know who Bumpy was. You know, he he had to do his Google. He had to go online and Google and do research. But um, at that time he introduced me to another good friend of mine by the name of Jay Cohen. And Jim and Jay Cohen are, are great friends. Jay is the uh, head guy over at, at Gersh. 
So um, they were talking about Bumpy on the phone. They were asking, what did I envision it being? Do I envision it being a uh, a series or a limited series? And they broke down, you know, the specifics, how The Walking Dead was supposed to be a, uh, a, a series that turned into a limited series because it did so well. Um, and I said, you know, I think this can be a, a series. And they were like, well, we're going to get back in contact with you. Called me back the next day and he said, you know, I really like this project. Let, let's think about how we can get a writer and how we can make everything happen. So um, the next couple of months, I did a lot of research. I was in the uh, Schomburg Museum doing pulling microfilm. And there's not that much about Bumpy out there. I mean, I had to really dig and dig and dig. It was almost like I was living in the Schomburg. A friend of mine named Tony Gentry, he was helping me, you know, Xerox and papers and going through research with me. We had to dig. And I got as much as I could about Bumpy, about Malcolm X, about Adam Clayton Powell. And um, while uh, I was talking to Jim, uh, he, he, he mentioned to his wife about the project. And his wife is like my big sister. Her name is Joanne Colano. And Joanne happens to be a partner at Brillstein Entertainment, and she's the most amazing person that you could ever meet. Her and Jim are like, I, I'm the, I'm an act, I'm an adopted Atchison. They call me their son, you know, and all their their little brother. And um, Jim said one day, he said, "What would you think about Forrest Whitaker playing Bumpy Johnson?" And I said, "Man, get the fuck out of here!" And I hung up the phone. Like you know, I'm like, I I haven't even met Jim. I was just talking to him over the phone, right? He called me back. He said, no, I'm serious because he's about to come spend the night at the house. And um, he said, I forgot to tell you, Joanne manages Forrest. And I was like, wow. I said, I would love for him. That, that would be something that's that's amazing to do. So I ended up meeting Nina, Forrest's producing partner. And uh, Forrest took me under his wing like I was his little brother. He saw my determination. And he, um, you know, he said, I reminded him of being unapologetic just like he was. And he said, you know what? I want to commit to produce it with you. But I'm not playing him as of yet because we still have to find a writer. And he wanted to know as an actor myself, how does it come out the pages? How does it represent? How can I become this character? So um, I was getting a lot of spec scripts from UTA, CAA, William Morris to go through with different writers. And we were just trying to find the right writer. So one day at home, Charlie, I was like late at night going through IMDb, looking at my favorite um, mobster movies. And I looked at Hoodlum. I said, let me give Jim a call. It was late at night. It must have been about uh, 12 o'clock LA. It must have been like two, three in New York. I said, hey, Jim, you know Chris Brancato? He said, Chris, you mean the writer? I was like, yeah, do you know him? He's like, yeah, he lives right across the street from me. He comes over every Sunday, and Joanne makes his big Italian dinner, and he comes over and he hangs out, him and his family. I said, well, do you think he may want to uh, work on this with us? Because he did Hoodlum, and that's in the same landscape. And he said, hmm, uh, I'll call him up, and, and let's let's see if, if, if he'll, he'll want to do it or not. Two days later, he said, I spoke to Chris. Chris said, that he can't work on it right now because he's working on this project called Las Serenas. It's a pilot on CBS. And he's also just coming off of doing Narcos and he's working on the El Chapo series that was supposed to get picked up in Nat Geo. So he can't do it. I said, what about Paul? He said, hmm, let me call Chris back and ask Paul. Paul said, hell yeah, I can do it. Paul said, um, 
I'm going to fly in to meet Marquand. He flew in to meet me. We sat down and talked. And with a last name was Eckstein, I thought it was a Jewish guy I was going to meet. But Paul is a brother. He says his father is a... His father's Jewish and his mother's African-American. And um, Bumpy actually put his grandmother through secretarial college. So all the stars were aligning. Chris happened to live across the street from my producing partner. Paul's and Chris worked on Bumpy, uh, the Hoodlum movie with Vanessa Williams and Bill Duke. I think it went through United Artists. And it just started in Lawrence Fishburne, and it all started coming together. So myself and Paul sat down. We had a conversation. He said, Marquand, I'm all in. Let's get this going. Paul worked on it for the first six months, and he was just... We, I was in L.A. I was sleeping on his garage floor. We would break down skeleton scripts. Jim would come by and break down stories with us. I would go back and forth to L.A., flying back and forth. And um, finally, Chris said, you know what? Las Serenas didn't get picked up, and I'll come work on the project, but we have to tell it through a different perspective, different POV. Let's tell it from Bumpy leaving Alcatraz in 1963, coming back to a different America, a different world that he had left behind. And we was like, wow, let's do it. And his relationship with the civil rights leader, which was Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell, and the log line was the collision of civil rights and the underworld. So after doing my deal with uh, ABC Disney, Tracy Underwood, because Chris had an overall deal at ABC Signature, uh, Pat Moran, who's no longer the president there, he supported us, and Tracy supported us, and was like, you know, uh, let's get this, let's get this project going. So, did they come in with the development money that you needed to do the rest of the leg? How did that work when you say well, they came in? Well, actually, because Epics is the streamer, um, but you, but you had ABC Disney with you as a, a financier, creative partner, what were they? They were a creative partner and financier as far as paying for the script to get written. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. As yeah, far yeah. as being the script to get written. So Paul and Chris wrote the script to get it written and myself and Jim were giving notes. I was tweaking the dialogue, making sure the dialogue was correct for the error and the, and the, uh, the slang. You know, I was doing in the interviews with all the o the OGs out in Harlem. They would sit down and they would talk to me. I would, you know, OGs with the likes of Junebug or Cricket or all these numbers runners. So I was getting a wealth of knowledge. So if a writer's room was supposed to start up, they would have all the knowledge that I had built and and put in a, a huge Google a Google Drive document. Right. So you you created the foundation absolutely for these guys to write the script. Yeah. And 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 ABC Disney came in because they believed that that the that the property was gonna gonna go yep, obviously absolutely and 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 now just give me a little moment of of the scary moments because every you know not that our audience is 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 all about people who dream of doing what you've done but I, there are certainly plenty of people who do yeah I know that you know there are a lot of up and coming producers and filmmakers that. Uh, uh, want to follow a dream, and you followed yeah. a dream. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, 2016, you're severance unemployed, and and you're heading in this direction. Yeah. Uh, uh, when did I? I don't know when your camera began on on Godfather of Harlem, but you were in development for th three years. 
well, how we, long did it take for you <clears throat> to get to shoot episode one of season one? Well, let me tell you something. There's something in between that as well, right? Okay, okay. So, we went to Disney. I went to the Disney, uh, Disney Studios and I sat down and I was told, you know, and this is from talking to Chris when Chris was in New York. He said, why are you doing this? I said, I made a promise and I got a thousand no's before I got one yes. So as an actor, I was creating a platform and I was creating my own destiny. He said, you know what? I'm gonna look forward to writing your lines. And he said, let's go. I sat down in the Disney offices and they told me once again that for this show to get sold and you to be in it, you might as well get struck by lightning twice. And I got struck by lightning twice, Charlie, I'm here with you. And um, <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. So um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't just straight from. Uh, no, you didn't. You didn't just development jump out. To, It yeah. wasn't straight from development, writing scripts to um, it to being shot. We got turned down by three networks. Right, but you started. Uh, typically, anyway, I'm, I don't know how you guys started, but in television, yeah. Typically, you start with a pilot script, yeah. and uh, and a bible. For the yeah. season, yep, and and these days the Bibles are pretty incredible. I don't know what you guys. I would love to see your Bible one yeah. day when we get a chance to hang out. Okay, because people who develop series, when they write a, a pilot script, and then they do the Bible. The Bible, at least these days, is a bound hardcover book with photographs and and look the look of the story and and the and and it's it's. It's like uh, it's very it's a very dramatic presentation. What when you guys wrote your did your pilot script and then made your Bible for what the season would be because that's what you had to pitch. Um, uh, that that's a lot of work. How long did it take you to get just to there from start to finish? Ah uh, man, we were we were developing a lease for almost two years. That's what I'm asking. About a year and a half to two years, and the Bible that we had wasn't as as, as fancy as you know some people's Bibles are. But um, Chris is a uh, is a straight professional. You know, he comes from the Dick Wolf camp, and being Warren Betty's assistant, and um, he just knew what to sell. Like he's an amazing uh, showman, a showman in the room when it comes to pitching a show. And so, and it was it was just an amazing thing to be out there with Forrest Whitaker. You know, my big brother, I call him Academy Award winning Forrest Whitaker, Emmy nominated writer uh, Chris Brancato. Uh, uh, producer extraordinaire Paul Eckstein, Jim Atchison, Nina Yang, Bon Jovi. We even had Tracy Underwood and the president of ABC in the room on the pitches. And and you were in the room for the pitches that were done. Oh yeah, I was part of the. Uh, we call ourselves the '96 Bulls. I was part of it. I'm the one that set off the pitches. I'm an amazing pitcher, man. <laughs> I love it. So um, yeah, I mean, pitching is just not you just being quiet. It's your story. It's your journey. I'm the story behind the story. So I have to set up the 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 lay of the land, the environment, why this story is an important story to be told. And then when you you sold the the series for for streaming and broadcast on Epics, but the the company, uh, I always like to know the structure of these deals. So okay. the comp ABC Disney took you through that development and pitch process. Are what what did they then financed the the series once it was bought by epics how did that no, absolutely there's a partnership with epics 
MGM Epics. You know, people say Epics without saying MGM. MGM, yeah. MGM Epics. There's a there's a partnership deal with ABC and uh and MGM where uh MGM Epics where Epics has the, the domestic rights and the ABC signature has the international rights. Right. But before we even got down to that point of selling it, we had to go out with the project, right? So WME represented the project. So we went out to three networks. You know, we sent it out around the town and only three networks bit, you know. And it's so funny because a lot of these executives, they say, oh, we got a show just like that. And it's not the show that you have. You know, you it, it's not uh, New Jack City. It's not Boys in the Hood. You, you should really take a time to look and read, you know, before just jumping to conclusions just because it's an African-American show. It's the same show that you guys right, have. Right, because they, they, they need they need to, in a, in a, in a, in a, real sense they need to demographically profile every show for the age of the audience yeah. and and the national sort of uh, uh, localization but you, of who's going to be the who are the who are going to be the viewers what is the demographic of your show uh, 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 urban suburban and rural who who are your viewers North America and then they and then of course they have to go beyond that because they're selling it for the world so, but you yeah. miss out on you miss out on great opportunities because there's a there's that urban legend that says African American shows don't do not do well overseas, and people get kind of scared of touching African American shows to do well for, overseas for international for sales. International sales. Yeah. And how did that you work know, for you all? I mean, I said, look at the Black Panther. They said it was an anomaly. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's really disheartening to hear stuff like that. You you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But so we went out to three networks, and. Um, you know, one of the networks were like, you know, we're not sure if this is for us or not because we don't know where we're going to go with it. You know, we got turned down by stars twice. Chris Albrecht turned us down twice. Um, Ari Emanuel walked us in the, the second time and was like, Chris, you got to look at this show again. Um, but it was one person, I remember, Mark Corman over at WME, who was a great agent, one of the super agents over there. He represents Chris Mercado. He believed in the project so much. And I remember Chris and we were on Venice Beach and Chris is walking by the water. And, you know, it, these are the days when you as a creator, you're waiting for your agent to call you to see what happened. You know, because, you know, we were pitching and pitching and pitching and pitching. You're waiting to see if they're going to pass or not pass, going to pass or not pass. And we got turned down. And um, I remember Chris telling me, you know, you have to manage your expectations, right? And I'm listening to him. And I remember going back to New York. It was Christmas during the holidays and New Year's comes. I what, get, what year is this? Uh, this is uh, 2018. All right. 2018. All right. And I remember an uh, email that came in and Chris said it was a noble failure. And I didn't understand what a noble failure is because where I'm from, there aren't any noble, noble failures. Where I'm from, failure is not an option. Where I'm from, there's no plan B. You know, I said to myself, Chris can go write the next hot movie for Robert Downey Jr. and hang out with his private chef and just and and uh, write the next best uh, thing on TV, right? Yeah. Forrest can go do another Academy Award winning movie. I yeah. had to make this work. There was no... There was no plan B for me. It's like if I was walking on a tightrope right now, I didn't have a safety net. I didn't want to go back to the streets. I didn't want to go back to doing something that I didn't want to do. All I wanted to do was be a creator. You feel what I'm saying? If I wasn't a creator, I'd rather die. It's like taking the oxygen out of my out of me. And I made a promise to Margaret, who was getting up there in age, that 
the show would happen. And Margaret passed away in 2016. So I felt like I, I owed it to her to get this show done by hook or by crook. I was on LinkedIn hitting executives over at uh, at Apple and Netflix, you know, after, you know, can we come back in? Can we get another run? You know, you know, everybody has, I'm not going to say they've given up, but they were like, we've been in this business and, you know, for a show to get picked up, it's just don't get your hopes up high, right? But for me, where I'm from and how I was raised, I was always the underdog. You know, I was always the type of person that says, you know what, you know, dream like you live forever, live like you die today. You know, that's my favorite quote by James Dean, and I, and I was going to do it. So one day, um, Chris hit me up by email and said, hey, there's a junior agent at WME who said there's a network by the name of Epics. Nobody really knew about Epics, but Michael Wright, who just came in from Steven Spielberg's company, Amblin Entertainment, is looking for a narco-ish type feel of show. And we sold him on the show. He wants us to come in and have a meeting. Uh, Forrest was about to go away. I was in New York. Paul and Chris, they had things. This is right after the holidays. He said, no, I need to see you guys before you leave. They went inside the room, and what was told to me, Michael Wright, was like, I don't want to be coy about this. We have money, and I want this show, and he bought it in the room. Forrest is calling my phone. like My phone was ringing and ringing and ringing. I wasn't picking up because I was in a deep depression because I didn't know what to do next. And he said, uh, he said, Marquand, why are you not picking up? We just sold the show. You ready to play your character? And it was just it was just the most surrealist, amazing thing that ever happened to me. 2019? 2019. Giddy up. Yeah. OMG. Fantastic. Yeah. Outrageous. And then the people you have, Guillermo Navarro. Guillermo Navarro, the most Ernest, Ernest Dickerson. And it's it's so funny. Hello. Ernest Dickerson comes back around because I was in the movie Juice. And we laughed about it on set. I was just like, he said, Wow, like look at how life works. I mean, I've I've spent a career's worth with with all of Spike's these DPs, yeah. and, and and Ernest went off to direct, of course. And yeah, this is fantastic, and Guillermo uh, is one of your directors, but he's he had amazing, amazing director, director Oscar Academy Award for a uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. You know, Guillermo del Toro's go-to guy. You know, he's a amazing guy. I just ha I had Thanksgiving with him. You know, over the one, pandemic. He was, he was a cinematographer and a director yeah, as well. He absolutely. Both, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And you had Chris Knorr and Jack Donnelly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, what, what? Jack is amazing, man. He does magic with his camera, and Chris does it, too. It, it was amazing. These guys were amazing. And, and and I learned so much on the set with them. You know, they embraced me, Um, you know, as an actor, running lines with Forrest and being in the same sandbox with John Carlo. And uh, and uh, Paul Savino and listening to Chad's stories, you know, Chad's story is so similar to mine where no one wanted to give him an opportunity. And he took and created an opportunity himself with Bronx Till, you know, and I'm um, sitting down at his restaurant and him telling me the story of how Bronx Till came to be, you know, listening to uh, to Sylvester Stallone's story when he made Rocky and no one wanted, you know, to have him play Rocky. I love stories like that. These stories like mean so much to me, knowing that Samuel L. Jackson had a substance abuse problem, you know, behind the Apollo, and now look where he's at right now. He beat the odds. Look at Charles Dutton, who went from jail to Yale. He beat the odds. Look at Tim Allen, your 
your friendly white face that's in all the your 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 favorite TV shows, your network TV shows was locked up for cocaine distribution. You know, look at Eric Bishop, known as Jamie Foxx, who's homeless and living in L.A. So I know my story resonates and means something, and I'm not ashamed to tell my story of being unapologetic. Yeah, no, no, no. It's 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 beautiful. I mean, I I think uh, uh, in fact I, I had a brief not. A personal encounter, but uh, through a producing partner uh, with with Dwayne Johnson's company. Yeah. And when they told me the name of the company and what it meant, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Because you know that they're called Seven Bucks Productions. Yeah. Uh, well, you know how they got their name, right? No, I don't. Okay, they got their name because Dwayne uh, tells the story about how he had seven bucks left wow. at a certain point in his life, and and he named his company after that moment of hardship. Yeah. So. The, these these stories of of triumph, uh, it 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 takes us back to the beginning of the thread. Never give up. Yeah. Pursue your your passion, your not that, your it's pension. Pursuit of happiness. And but it's also, I say this to my kids. Um, uh, we're in a world now. My 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 son's twenty three, and my daughter's twenty six. And we're in a world now where you have to have a digital identity, definitely, right? I mean, we, I didn't grow up with that. We didn't even grow up with computers and cell phones when I was growing up, right? But you have to have a digital identity, and you have to become, while you work for others, you have to become your own engine. Absolutely. You have to be your own business. And I, I still feel that the best employee, I mean, and I know this from managing people on jobs that I run, the best employee is the person that treats their job as if they're an owner with you. Absolutely. Would you agree? Absolutely. If you, I say this, if you come to work, come to work just as the boss. Even though you may not be the boss, you know, that's your reflection that this is what you're going to be one day. I had a producer I worked with recently, and I and I and in conversation, it wasn't that things got hot, but you know how things can get hot. And 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 I said to him, uh I work for you, so what do you want? And he, and he looked at me. He says, "No, Charlie, you don't work for me. You work with me." Absolutely. And I think that this lesson, right, of 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 that. I mean, all of these components. Because the story. I mean, the first of all, the story. I mean, is you getting struck by lightning twice? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is just this is a this is an inspiration. Yeah. For any filmmaker. I mean, any filmmaker that's going to watch this episode, anyone who's writing something that doesn't believe it's possible, they're going to look at Mark Van Smith and say, what happened here? What the fuck? This yeah. is awesome, yeah. right? I mean, we, we have a, 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 an obligation to share the, the stories of, 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 of hitting the bottom and rising back up and never giving up. Absolutely. And that's what you've done. Yeah. And it's absolutely remarkable. And it's more than just dreaming. It's about executing your dreams. So we can go to sleep and dream, but if you can't just dream. You have to execute it. Right. Right. And I think that that in order to do that, you, what do you feel were the tools for you when you were at your darkest place to get back up and make it happen? Because I'm see to me that's fascinating. When you were in the moment where you felt it was all falling apart, how did you keep it together? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, 
I'm very spiritual and I had God in my life. And uh, there's many nights, you know, I used to just pray and uh, look out my window over the west side and just say to myself and think about, you know what, I had to kind of like clear my palate. I had to turn my circle into squares. I had to kind of like zone out and put family. I had to become selfish. You know, when you keep living for other people, sometimes that takes away from your dreams because your family could be, and this is no disrespect, I love my family, but your family could be your biggest dream killers because they don't see what that you see. You're the only one that sees what you see. When you go to sleep at night, you go to sleep by yourself. There's no bunk beds in the graveyard. When you leave this world, I'm not tapping you saying, Charlie, hey, come on. There's some. There's another space next to, you know, the plot next to you. We, we are out by ourselves. So you have to zone out and believe in yourself. And, um, and that's how I, that's how I kept it going. Every day is a new opportunity. Every day is a new dream. Uh, my, my ex-father-in-law was a veteran in, in World War II in the Normandy invasion. Yeah. And I always say any guy that went through that every day that they're breathing is a new, beautiful day. And he was the funniest dude. Uh, but also he had such an unbreakable spirit because because when and and i think that i think i mean not everybody doesn't go through rough scrubs but when we live when we live going back to the pension versus the passion when we live for a company to take care of us rather than us to take care of ourselves we're not living if we're not living because you got to also look at it like this God forbid something happens to you, that cubicle will be life sold out. Your, your, <laughs> all your belongings will be put in a black bag and somebody will be replacing you sitting you right, sitting right there. You know, And you saw it during the time of the pandemic, how many loved ones you lost and, and during COVID. I tell this to people all the time. You know, A lot of people want success but aren't willing to work for success. Are you willing to eat tuna fish sandwiches and ramen noodles when you can't afford to go to Peter Luger's or or Ruth Chris? Are you willing to sleep on somebody's couch because you can't afford to stay at the W or the Marriott? Are you willing to take a buddy pass knowing that you have a meeting at Netflix on Monday morning and you have to find a way to leave and get to Netflix to meet that, make that meeting? So people want success, but they're not willing to go through what it is to get through the steps of success, and that's what I did. I've been humble, I've been low, and I totally understand, you know. It, it feels so good now that when I <clears throat> when I come home, I see residual checks in the mail that I don't even have to touch. While I had a $4,000 severance uh, in my pocket in, in 2016, you know. So I always remember I'm humble, and the key to it is to keep creating. Don't look at it like you made it. You haven't made it. You just keep creating, and you hustle like this is your first, and that's what I do. And... And Godfather of Harlem effectively is your first, right? This is your Absolutely. first big show. Yes, it is. So I'm, 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 I'm guessing the next time I see you, there's going to be another one. Oh uh, yeah, quiet is kept. You know, we're working on something right now. That's so exciting. So is it a series or is it a movie? No, I have a. I, I, I love the television space. You know, I have some features, but I have a couple of series that I'm working on right now. One of them I'm excited about. I can talk. I can. I can talk about them. I'm. I'm doing a project with uh, uh the Womack family about Bobby Womack and his his life story. I want to kind of envision it like what Aretha Franklin and Ron Howard did and uh and Brian Grazer did with the Genius series with Aretha Franklin. So I want to do a series on Bobby Womack as well as a documentary. 
I'm doing a project about DC in the late 80s, Marion Barry, Reaganomics, the haves, the have-nots, casteism, socialism, capitalism, with the background of go-go music. Um, that's something I'm excited about. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. That was quite a quite yeah, a moment in time. Very much, you know, and I want to tell that story, you know, the Don Draper world, you know. I'm, I'm uh, working on a project about a an individual by the name of Corey Pegues. Corey Pegues was a, a was a cop, and it's and his book is called Once a Cop. He was a a well known police officer. He used to hustle and sell drugs for a well known drug organization called the Supreme Team, and um, God gave him a second chance where he went away to the army, came home and became one of the top ranked police officers in the in the United in the, well in New York City. And um, almost deputy inspector, and uh, he got hurt on the job, um, and he decided to write a book, a cautionary tale for kids. And the brass found out that you know he was friends with cop killers, and he sold drugs, and they tried to say he cheated on his chest test and take away his pension, his badge, and everything. And he's a good friend of mine's, and I'm working on telling his series as well. So I love to tell narratives that means something, you know. I love to tell stories that are conversations. And that's where Godfather Harlem comes in because it's not a it's not a gangster story, it's a conversation. I like those stories that Sunday, you know, you can watch it with your family. You know, you can sit down, you can have healthy debates and that's what we wanted Godfather Harlem to be and that's where it's at right now. We're the flagship show of Epics. Season mm. Two now, season three. Where are we at now? We're on season two right now. Season two. We are. We're in a mid-season finale. We come back on August eighth. And then, and then, what was there a plan for how many seasons in 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 your in your roadmap? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna take it all the way to nineteen sixty eight when Bumpy um passes away. Right. So is that that? So th- does that story run for for three seasons, four seasons, five seasons? Absolutely. Malcolm dies in nineteen sixty five. And then the world still goes on after Malcolm dies. You know, Martin Luther King gets assassinated. So many things are happening. And that's why it's the Godfather of Harlem is so beautiful because it's historical. You know, we're not just making things up out of the it air. It tells the story of what was happening in the civil rights era. Absolutely. As a backdrop to everything that goes on in the Bumpy Johnson story. Yes. Fantastic. So it just keeps rolling. But but it, but does does the the original plan have a certain amount of seasons that were built into it? Did you have an idea when you started? Yeah, we... Or was it endless? No, we had a plan. Uh, we kind of called this like the prequel to American Gangster. We had a plan that we were going to stop in 1968 when Bumpy passed away. And then from then on, you know, every everything has its end. You know, Malcolm is going to unfortunately meet his, um, his assassination, whether it's in season four or whether it's in season three, however the writers uh, write it out. Got it. So you, so you just, you just keep, you keep uh, 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 building the story of this character that lives until nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, and everything that happens he's during a, that he's period a, he's of time. A, he's a, a tortured uh, older gangster that's trying to uh, change himself and the world. Yeah, the Robin Hood of Harlem. Robin Hood of Harlem. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, we got through a lot tonight. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, uh, and, uh, we got through without any vodka or anything. No vodka. <laughs> no vodka. And, uh, and, 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 and you are an absolute inspiration. What a great, great, great time we've had here, man. Thank, Thank you. you, man. I appreciate awesome. you. Thank you. Thank man. you. Conversations, Conversations with, with Charlie, Charlie, bro. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's go. Thank you. Thank you. 
The Pod Matrix.